Hello, my name's James Thomas and welcome to the podcast Don't Let God Put You Off the Bible. This episode is entitled The Mysterious Silence of Paul. To returning listeners, I say thank you for dropping by again and I hope life has been kind to you since we last met. And to new visitors, it's a great big arms out welcome. Oh, and welcome to Brazil and New Zealand. Yes, it seems I've picked up one or two friends in both these places in the last month or so, which is great. Welcome. As my existing listeners know, I do like to have a small glass of whiskey while recording these podcasts. And my glass for tonight is that good old standby Johnny Walker. Nothing fancy but it sure is reliable, and just what you need in today's exciting world. On that point, there's an old Arabian curse that says, may you live in interesting times. And today's world certainly seems to be filled with interesting times. But you know, when you look back over history, as I'm sure you do if you're taking time to listen to this podcast, Every generation has had its interesting times. So I say, let's just plod on like so many have done in the past and make the most of what we can. Hence me sitting here with a glass of Johnny Walker and talking to you, who may be down the road or the other side of the world. I mean, that that's great, isn't it? And before you start asking yourself if Johnny Walker has an interest in this podcast, I can tell you very definitely no. Oh, James, uh, Johnny Walker here. We need to increase our public profile by about, all 20 people. Can you help? Yep, sure. Sign me up. I'll do a product placement. Not going to happen. Yet. Stick with me, kiddo. Anyway, as my regular friends will know, I'm still building the format of this podcast, and in this edition... I've added a section where we look at anything new going on in the world of biblical archaeology. Some really quite major news can break in this field and never get sufficient international coverage. Unless you keep an eye on the relevant journals and news feeds, you can miss big shifts in current thinking based on archaeological finds and ongoing research. So if you don't have the time to keep abreast of this stuff, fear not. I'll do it for you right here. So diving straight into my new section that I will call Archaeological Updates, let's take a look at an interesting article in the latest edition of Bar magazine. For those who don't know, Bar stands for Biblical Archaeological Review. One of its lead articles in the autumn edition details a discovery by a team from ABR, the Associates for Biblical Research. It seems that in March they announced the discovery of a lead tablet from Mount Ebal that contains a Hebrew inscription, an inscription that dates back to around 1200 BC. This would make it the oldest extant Hebrew inscription. And it's a curse, no less, a curse that invokes the deity Yahweh. Now this is where we have to be a little sceptical because it fits beautifully with something detailed explicitly in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 11.29, Moses instructs the people, prior to them entering Canaan, 
but once there they are to set up two altars, one on Mount Gerizim proclaiming blessings and one on Mount Ebal proclaiming curses. Back in the 80s, Adam Zertal excavated a site in the West Bank and claimed it to be the site of the altar set up by Joshua on his arrival into Canaan. It was while the ABR team were sifting through soil dumps from the original dig that they came across the lead tablets. Now, I think the assertion here is that this inscribed lead tablet was made by the original people who crossed over into Jordan with Joshua. which is quite a claim. And not surprisingly, the find is very controversial and not helped by the lack of visual or written documentation provided by the ABR team. But things should become a little clearer when the promised peer review article is released very soon, as the team has promised. We wait to see. And to be honest here, because I wrote this section of the podcast quite a bit earlier in the year, I may be out of date and that may have already been released and some of you may be screaming at your smartphones or iPads. It's already happened. You're out of date. Well, that's the price I pay for being so bloody slow at writing these podcasts, Thomas. So on to the next section. Well, I never knew that. This is a quick look at some of the more quirky facts and happenings from the biblical world today. I'm very proud of my sound effects, by the way. So if you're not familiar with the history of the site of Masada, in a nutshell, it was the site of the last stand of the Jews against the Romans, who had invaded Jerusalem and finally destroyed the temple in 70 CE. A beleaguered group of Jews had retreated to Masada because it was an easy-to-defend fortress built high up on a hilltop. But as the Roman siege inevitably began to reach a successful conclusion, the defending inhabitants decided it would be better to commit a mass suicide rather than be captured by the Romans. Better dead than slaves. This is documented, but it still remains controversial. It's documented by the first-century historian Josephus, but it's controversial because when it was excavated, they found very few bones there. Certainly not enough to indicate a mass suicide on the scale that Josephus indicates. The argument here is, if so many people committed suicide, where are all the bones? But in counter to this, the argument goes that Masada was a very useful fortress was a very useful site and it had been used by several groups so why on earth wouldn't have the romans gone on to adopt it after um the, their siege they would have gone in cleared out the bodies and then used it for their own purposes so as normal in this kind of subject there's arguments both ways and at the end of the day you have to make the call for yourself but this is neither here nor there right now the fact is that now, my friend, while you are taking in the sombre atmosphere of a site of horrific emotional desperation, that, one way or another, ended in many, many needless deaths, you can now pick yourself up a McDonald's. Yes, folks, the most famous burger chain in the world is now flipping burgers in the visitor centre at Masada. 
in all honesty, it has been there for some time, but it's not the kind of news that your local station is likely to pick up on, so I thought I would share it with you here. I make no judgment, and actually, thinking about it, what judgment is there to make? After all, you would reasonably expect to have some venue for refreshments at a visitor's site. And just because it's McDonald's, should that be viewed as wrong? If it was just a restaurant, would I pause for thought at all? Probably not. I don't know. It's just, well... Hey folks, after you've said your silent prayer for the fallen dead at Masada, remember... At McDonald's we have time for you. Kind of greats. And so to the main event of this podcast, the mysterious silence of Paul. One of the big mysteries of the New Testament is why does Paul seem to know so little about Jesus, or at least about his life, deeds and belief? This is an important question and one often looked at in educational course curriculums. There are 13 letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament, seven of which are undisputed. And in these, the only things concerning Jesus that seem to be big in Paul's thinking are his death and resurrection. This really is the be-all and end-all for Paul's attention. Believe in his death and resurrection and you will find salvation. That's it, in a nutshell. In fact, it won't take me any time at all to list what Paul lets us know he knows about Jesus. He knows he was born of a woman. He knows he was Jewish. He had brothers, one called James. He mainly ministered to Jews. Paul gives two of Jesus' teachings. You should not get divorced and you should pay your ministers. He knows Jesus had 12 apostles. He knows about the Last Supper, the betrayal by Judas and the crucifixion. Just to backtrack a little, Paul doesn't mention Judas by name and even his reference to a betrayal is rightly disputed. The correct translation of what Paul says is probably that Jesus was handed over or given up. Paul's supposed reference to Jesus' betrayal could actually be no more than him making reference to the moment God gives Jesus up so the final act of sacrifice could be carried out. God sacrificing his son for the salvation of humanity. And there is nothing about another Jew betraying Jesus. Just think about it. How much needless hate and mistrust has been generated over the past 2,000 years by mistranslation, unintentional or otherwise. But this aside, that's it. That is the sum of what Paul mentions. He makes no explicit reference to any of his miracle workings. He relates none of his parables. And, as stated, he only raises a couple of points regarding his teachings. To be fair, it is important to remember that he did not have any of the Gospels to reference because they had not been written at the time he was penning his letters. But he had been in receipt of some learning because he states that himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3 he states, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So he picked this up from somewhere. 
In contradiction to Acts, Paul states in Galatians 1.17 that after his conversion he did not go up to Jerusalem for three years, but when he did, he stayed with Peter for 15 days and met James, the brother of Jesus. So, what exactly went on during this little fortnight's excursion? Did sightseeing take up all the days, leaving no time to discuss little side issues like the Jesus backstory, to use a trending phrase? Given that Paul was such a complete swat when it came to religion, as he states himself, I find it hard to believe he didn't come away from his sojourn not having had a thorough briefing in the life and theology of Jesus. And there is no way Paul could have avoided an ever-growing body of oral tradition that must have been going around at the time in order to fuel the steady growth of the new Christ cult, as I think we'll have to call it for now because the term Christian hadn't been coined. We have to believe that Paul knew a lot more about Jesus than he ever cared to mention. So surely the question has to be not why did Paul know so little about Jesus, but why did, he why did he choose not to impart more of what he did know about Jesus? One of the standard taught explanations that seems perfectly logical is that in his letters, Paul is addressing specific issues regarding the communities he is aiming any given letter at, hence their title of occasional letters. So he is not simply giving general information on Jesus or his beliefs, but confining himself to the matter in hand and the behaviours of the recipients involved. So it's simply a case that chances did not really present themselves for Paul to weird out the odd well-chosen yarn about the Lord himself. I think this reasoning works and seems fairly obvious once you have been prompted to think in this way, but I think there is an alternative reason a reason that cuts right into the man or myth argument about Jesus and also the true drivers that made Paul do what he did to spread the gospel of Christ. I believe that most of what Paul heard either from James and Peter or the growing oral tradition that was circulating out of Palestine in the very early days was not material that he believed he could use to sell the new movement to Gentiles. What I mean by this is that when Paul was having the details of Jesus' life related to him by people who actually surrounded him, there were no stories of Jesus walking on water, or feeding the 5,000, or raising the dead, no tales of him confronting evil spirits and driving them into a herd of swine, and no one had seen him stand with Moses and Elijah on a mountain top. I think it was one single part of what was otherwise a fairly normal everyday life story that was fast formulating amongst Jesus' original disciples that captured Paul's imagination and from that everything else stemmed. All of Paul's theology either works towards or tracks back to Jesus' resurrection. The single event is at the heart of the two bulwarks of his teachings. Believe in the resurrection and you will have salvation from your sins. And secondly, you will gain access to the eternal kingdom of God, which is fast approaching. The resurrection of Jesus proves this because he is the first fruits of everyone being brought back from the dead to take their judgment alongside the living. I don't think Paul found anything else related to him sensational enough 
or different enough to be of remark. Unfortunately, to prove this, we have to be able to prove what traditions surrounding Jesus' sayings, parables and events from his life were being recounted by his original followers. And in this field of study, you really can never have proof. You can only gather evidence. Proof, evidence, two very different things. The four Gospels are our earliest accounts of Jesus' life. And as we know, they were written decades after his death and almost certainly by people who had never come into contact with Jesus or been in Palestine at the time of his ministry. However, a certain line of scholarly inquiry has, since the 18th century, been dedicated to unearthing any possible genuine diamond nuggets of truth buried under the undoubted Hellenistic romanticisation that the... Is, is that a word? It, it is now a Hellenistic romanticisation that the Gospels were subject to. And one particular direction of investigation could very possibly signpost us to many of the genuine sayings of Jesus. And that's what I'm going to share with you right now. Just a little necessary background first, I'm afraid. Mark is generally accepted as the first Gospel written. Then Matthew and Luke. And these two drew heavily on Mark for a bulk of their material. But, and here's the thing, they both have stories that are not in Mark. And not only that, some of these stories that they have but Mark doesn't are in both Matthew and Luke. And not only that, they are written down in such close alignment with phrasing and verbiage that it looks like these stories must have come from a written document. What I mean by that is that if Matthew and Luke had just both heard the same story, but from different sources, what they would have written would have held the same event, same message, but be written quite differently. But what we have is reports where the language is so close, it looks like text has been lifted from a document that they both had access to. So what is this document and where is it? Well, it appears to be a document made up mostly of the sayings of Jesus. But as to where it is, well, we just don't know. It is a purely theoretical document, document, with Matthew and Luke containing signposts that triangulate to a point with nothing there. It's been lost. It's similar to how astronomers know a star has planets orbiting around it purely because they can see that star oscillating. They can't see the planets, only the effects they are having on the star. We can see the chapters in Matthew and Luke that indicate another written source had been used, but we just can't find it. We don't have it. So a few scholars have gone through the two Gospels and picked out what, in their studied opinion, would have made up this mysterious document that has been named Quelle, German for source, shortened to Q for convenience. As this study went on, some scholars came to suspect that there were layers to Q. The first layer, Q1, possibly written down about 20 years after the crucifixion, and then later redaction was being performed up to around 70 CE. Q1, therefore, will, in theory, show us two things. If we believe the dating, then it shows us what the very early Christians viewed as the most important things to record about Jesus' life. And that 
is his sayings. Not his birth or his death or his miracles, nor his bloodline or potential divinity. Jesus' teachings seem to be what was held as most important. And the second thing that Q1 can give signpost to is what issues were of most concern to his early followers. By scrutinising the content of the sayings recorded, we can assess what topics had the greatest resonance. As one Joseph Lumpkin lists in his book Before the Gospels, the subjects covered in Q1 are who will belong to the kingdom of God, the proper treatment of others, do not judge others, working for the kingdom, asking for God's help, do not fear speaking out, and do not concern yourself with food, clothing or possessions. The kingdom will soon arrive, the cost of being a follower and the cost of rejecting the message. And, as he quotes from a 2005 article by a B.A. Robinson, what was completely absent was any reference to what we would deem as crucial factors of Christianity today, such as crucifixion, Eucharist, Last Supper, healing, John the Baptist, and the list goes on. In Q1, the original Christians appeared to be centred totally on concerns with their relationship with God and other people. So if Paul did, as he says he did, go up to Jerusalem and meet with James and Peter, he wouldn't have heard much talk about subjects that were to be the core of his teachings to the Gentiles. James and Peter's perspective would have been centred around the coming of the new kingdom and how to enter it through a right relationship with God directly. And Jesus painted very much as a teacher, a facilitator of how to attain this status, as opposed to the being through which you would be granted salvation. So, in some ways, Paul did use later what he had heard that Jesus had preached, such as, don't bother with worldly possessions or anything else worldly, because very soon the last days will be here, and if you have proved yourself righteous enough, you will dwell in God's kingdom and have no need for such things. But he would have been familiar with that line of theology anyway. He was a self-confessed Pharisee, and there is evidence that some Pharisees were apocalypticists at the time. The big difference was how you proved yourself to be righteous. Peter and James would have been telling Paul that Jesus was insistent that this was through a right relationship with God. But Paul would put this through the spin machine, only for it to come out turned right around and totally focused on your relationship and belief of Jesus. James and Peter's focus, and by extension therefore early Christians, was on the teachings of Jesus and not Jesus himself. It's important to remember that at this stage there were no actual Christians in Palestine. There were simply Jews who followed the teachings of Jesus. It seems likely that many of them came to view him as the Messiah, but probably not the divine Son of God. This idea seems to be one that evolved over a relatively short space of time, but later. So at the time when Paul went to visit Jerusalem, Jesus' biographical details were still pretty much untouched by authors keen to prove his credentials as a divine Messiah. 
James would have related a story where Jesus probably was not shown as the product of a virgin birth, probably wasn't born in Bethlehem, and almost certainly didn't recommend a sacrament that involved a ritualistic drinking of blood, which would have flown in the face of the very deepest held beliefs of his own religion. So, this comes back to the conclusion that Paul probably did know quite a bit about Jesus, but didn't relate it, simply because none of it was relevant to the gospel that he was about to unleash on the world. James and the Council of Jerusalem did not survive the Roman onslaught. I think Paul picked up on the ever-growing, militant, revolutionary mood sweeping through Palestine in the first century, and correctly predicted it was not going to end well. Paul saw some kind of conflict looming, built a bigger boat and got the hell out of Dodge, to mix a couple of metaphors. He took the nucleus beliefs of a movement growing in popularity thanks to a hugely charismatic leader, made them easy to be adopted by Gentiles, tamed them to make them more acceptable to the Romans, and then went on to unleash them throughout the Mediterranean and on. He took the apocalyptic branch of Judaism and put it through the Hollywood machine. And as to whether he was right or wrong to do that, well, it depends entirely on your standpoint. No one is wise enough to make that call on someone else's behalf. One positive thing to have come out of this close scrutiny by scholars of the New Testament and Paul and first century Israel is that however harshly the light of reality has been applied to scripture, biblical and non-biblical, there still stands an historical Jesus, a tremendously charismatic teacher of ethics who was important enough to be put front and centre of a religious movement that would soon sweep the world like no other. And I think that will be a big comfort for many. So at the end of all of that, I have one last sip of whiskey in my glass. So I raise it to you and thank you for taking the time to sit down with me and ponder. Cheers. It's been emotional. <laughs>